Hello, welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jacobin Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. Our series of interviews with socialists running for Congress continues with Anthony Clark. Anthony is running for Illinois' 7th District, uh, and it's his second run against a longtime incumbent, Danny Davis. He has a pretty fascinating life history, which we discuss at length in this interview, along with how Bernie Sanders inspired him to run for office, how serving in the military shaped his views on foreign policy, and his recent campaign video in which he smokes weed, for which he got a bunch of attention. Before we turn to the interview, a quick personal plug. Jacobin staff writer Megan Day and I just turned in a final draft of our book, Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. It'll be out in April, and as of right now, you can pre-order it on Amazon, which is, yes, a very evil corporation, but it matters for us in getting the book on the map. If you can't stomach ordering from Amazon, there will be pre-orders available soon on the Verso Books website. And once the book is out, we'll be hitting the road to promote it around the country, so stay tuned for details on that. Okay, here's Anthony Clark. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. So let's start with the basics about your biography. You told me that you're Chicago born and bred, right? Definitely, definitely. My parents, shout out to them, uh, Ronald and Blanche Clark. Uh, they just had their anniversary the other day, 45 years, I believe, together. Wow. Uh, love them to death. Yeah, so I was born in Morgan Park, south side of Chicago. Uh, and at the age of five, you know, my parents uh, scraped together enough money uh, you know, in their in their efforts, so like so many families, to uh, you know find better and greater opportunity and safety for their child, uh, we moved to Oak Park, Illinois. Okay. Oak Park, that's a first ring suburb, right outside. Correct, of the right outside of, of uh, Austin Community, right. West Side. Yes, sir. And so, what was that childhood like growing up in Oak Park, coming from the South Side? You know, it's so interesting. Uh, you know, of course, I wouldn't change anything, but looking back, it provided me with so much perspective. And of course, being that young, you don't necessarily, you know, understand how to articulate what you're experiencing or what you're seeing. But the rest of my family were like still in the hood, you know, like the majority of my family were still on the south side of Chicago, had family on the west side of Chicago. Uh, my older half brother at that time was incarcerated, uh, you know, in and out of jail, uh, you know, within the penal institution, the criminal justice system that's broken. So being that young and, you know, Having the experience of literally crossing a street and seeing everything change, you know, whether it be in regard to opportunity, whether it be in regard to safety, whether it be in regard to investment. Like at that time, I didn't know how to articulate what I was seeing, but you, you felt it. You know, you felt the difference. Right. And for people who aren't in Chicago, the Austin neighborhood is a west side, far west side neighborhood in Chicago that is uh, predominantly black, Correct. poor, and right across the border in Oak Park. Oak Park is a more diverse suburb than some, but right. it, it's certainly a wealthier and whiter Right. Place. I mean, it kind of hit it home. So you have River Forest and Oak Park. Uh, you know, the public high school within a district, the one public high school within a district is Oak Park and River Forest High School. The median income in River Forest is like over $100,000. Median income in Oak Park is over $80,000. And then literally you cross the street and the median income drops between twenty to thirty k. Uh, so that's a huge difference in regards to uh, economic inequality. So growing up in Oak Park, going to school there, what what happened next after all that? You know, again, you know, my story, I can't overgeneralize and speak for others, but I struggled with identity for a long time because, again, I'm this, you know, young black kid. I'm in Oak Park, a predominantly white community. 
Uh, but I have these experiences of, you know, going to see my family who are struggling with, you know, again, with the criminal justice system. I have uncles in and out of jail. Uh, you know, I have cousins that are getting beat up by police officers. I have a brother that gets out, but, you know, is not making a living wage. So he goes back to selling drugs and then goes back within. Uh, and then I'm around kids who are literally from like old, like what I call generational capital, generational wealth, socially and economically. Like they've literally been in Oak Park and places like Oak Park all of their lives. Uh, like their large home has been in their family all of their life. And then I have my parents who are working, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week and we're renting. Uh, you know, so what they tried to do was they tried to expose me, you know, to this to this new way of life. They put me in a private school initially. And I literally remember coming home every day like crying, you know, because I just felt out of place. Uh, you know, I wanted to be with my cousins. I wanted to be with the friends that I knew. I just didn't feel like I had a sense of belonging. And what ended up happening was I, I started to fight because kids would pick on me. You know, I'll be, be bullied. Uh, but thankfully, my father raised me to always fight back. So I would, you know, constantly be in trouble in these private schools. And I actually got kicked out uh, heading into uh, seventh grade, not for actually defending myself. But one of my tormentors, one of my bullies was picking on this little Jewish kid named Philip. Uh, we actually became friends after that. Shout out, Philip. Uh, but I punched him. I punched the kid in his face. And then they like the school said they had enough of me. Uh, so they kicked me out, and then I went into uh, the public school system. Uh, ended up getting into some trouble, uh, and from that trouble, ended up going into the military, uh, you know, served six years active duty, uh, was shot, you know, uh, got a disability from chemicals I was working with. You know, it's a lot going on. <laughs> oh, you're, all right, you're, we're moving through some things yeah. very quickly here. So <laughs> you got into I some mean. trouble in Atlanta, <laughs> and you joined the Air Force because of that? Right. So doubling back, uh, you know, graduated from high school. I had an older girlfriend at the time who was a sex worker uh, within Atlanta. You know, she used to live in Chicago. So moved out there with her. Still friends to this day, you know. But of course, we're young. You know, we're young. We're trying to live on our own, trying to make it. Didn't really know what love was at the time. So there was struggle, you know, and of course, her being within the sex work industry, which should be decriminalized, not the Nordic model. Uh, you know, sex work is work. Uh, but there was just a lot, you know, uh, of things that were going on that we couldn't handle. So we ended up breaking up. And from that, uh, I was living in my car. Uh, so I was homeless for a bit in Atlanta, uh, staying actually outside of Piedmont Park in my vehicle. Uh, my parents ended up finding out I was struggling. They learned and they got me a job with a family friend. And, and again, just making bad decisions. I ended up stealing money, you know, from this bank I was working at uh, because I was actually kind of involved in the street life as well. So I was using my daytime, daytime money, not wanting to wait on my check, you know, and then going out at night and doing things that I wasn't supposed to be doing. So from that, I got caught. Uh, you know, police and law enforcement were looking for me. Uh, my father ended up getting into his vehicle, driving down to Atlanta, locating me, uh, bringing me in because there was an investigation based upon the money that I stole. And the manager of the bank that I, I was uh, working at, I mean, honestly, just gave us an ultimatum, like, Literally said, you know, I know your family, you know, I know I know you and I'm going to give you a choice. Like you have to show me that you're going to do something positive, you know, or we're going to press charges. And I, I mean, I scrambled. I didn't know what the hell to do. I didn't want to go back home because I knew at that time a lot of my friends were, you know, falling victim to gun violence. You know, a lot of my friends were also getting arrested. It was just negative back in Chicago. I was a negative in Atlanta. Uh, I knew my father had served in the military. Uh, so I just, I said, okay, I'll, I'll go to the military. Is that positive? <laughs> and they accepted that, that, uh, that choice. So from there, I spent six years active duty in the United States Air Force. You know, I'm not a patriot. You know, I believe we should end all war. 
but again, that gave me greater perspective uh, because many of the struggles that I saw that I thought were localized uh, growing up, like when you travel, you, you really see poverty as well. You know? So where did you go? Uh, I've been to Turkey, been to Kuwait, uh, been to Iraq. You know, I had some decent trips in regard to going to uh, New Zealand and went to downtown Christchurch. Uh, so, you know, I had just various experiences. But no matter where I went, even in New Zealand, you saw a hood. You know what I'm saying? Like you saw poverty. Uh, so it, it taught me that struggle is universal. You know, I may all these different places I'm going to, I may not be able to speak a particular local language, but I recognize and can speak struggle. Uh, so were you fighting in Iraq? So I was Air Force. So we're more okay. in a supportive role. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was a crew chief, a C-17 mechanic. Uh, so I would fly back and forth with the aircraft. It's the aircraft that you would see in like Transformers. Anybody watch? I mean, the new Transformers were horrible. Michael Bay. I don't know what the hell you were doing. <laughs> uh, but like the large cargo planes with the wings that point up. Uh, so I should have yeah. watched Transformers. Yeah, don't, this don't. I'm sorry, this, not he, he for ruined, this discussion. Yeah, he ruined Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> oh, a, well, definitely I'm a movie, not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Michael, Michael Bay is just ridiculous. Uh, but you know, from that, we would travel back and forth. So we like we would drop off supplies, drop off weapons, uh, drop off troops. We would also take you know insurgents or you know enemies uh, back and forth. Putting air quotes in there. Right, right. Enemies because I feel like one person's. Patriot is another person's terrorist. You know, I ran in and encountered young individuals just like myself that most likely could speak struggle as well, you know. So and for people who have never been in the military before, I mean, you obviously just said that the reason that you joined was not because you wanted to no. carry out some war against the people in the Middle East or something. You did it because you were at a certain point in your life where you had to, you know, you, you joined because it was an ultimatum, like either right. do this or you're probably going to end up going to jail. Right. And I assume you had other people who you were in the military with who were in similar situations. No, no and- question. Uh, I was stationed in Tacoma, Washington, uh, outside of Seattle. And, you know, we, we, we created like a crew, like friends from all over the country because the military is like a small city, you know, when you're on a military base. So I encountered a lot of racists. I encountered a lot of bigots. Uh, and often these are individuals that never seen a black person before, you know, never saw someone of color before. So you quickly try to find the support base. You know, your sergeant is a racist or a sexist or a bigot, you know, so you quickly find a support base. But what I tell people is the military is like the biggest welfare state. So many people enter into the military because they're trying to escape poverty, because they're trying to escape violence. They're desperate from some type of opportunity. The military promises you health care things that we're fighting for right now, Medicare for all, the military promised to pay for your schooling, things that we're fighting for right now, college for all, you know, uh, eliminate all student debt. Uh, you know, the, and the military promises a job, federal jobs guarantee, Green New Deal. You know, these are things we're fighting for. The military promises the people that are desperate. Uh, so, yeah, there's so many individuals in the military that are not patriots. They, they could care shit less about war. Uh, they don't believe in war uh, like myself. But you're, you're thrown into this and not necessarily understanding what you're being thrown into. You just understand what you try to escape. So we'll talk about more about how, what that experience, uh, how that impacted your, your feelings on foreign policy. But you mentioned <laughs> one, of, one of the things you mentioned quickly is that, oh, you were shot. Uh, can right. you rewind to that and explain how, uh, how that yeah, happened? Yeah, definitely. I mean, again, you know, struggle is struggle no matter where you are. And what's interesting, you know, again, we talk often about the economy, uh, but there's a lot of towns that will struggle again without 
military bases being within their local oh, yeah. facilities. Yeah. Like military bases drive the That's economy. The economic engine. Exactly, yeah. it's the economic engine. But that also creates uh, a lot of anger, uh, you know, uh, with locals. You know, so there are a lot of locals and communities, and I don't blame them. Uh, they have disdain for the military. You know, whether they don't agree with war or they just feel like. You know, again, what the military brings to a community is not necessarily positive. So I wasn't actually even deployed. What happened was I was supposed to deploy to Turkey the next day. So we got our group of friends together because when you deploy, you may be gone six months, a year. You may die. You may not come back. Uh, So we went out uh, to just have a few drinks to say bye. And a group of locals, a local gang saw us, uh, didn't take kindly to us being in their like community in their space. Uh, you know, and wanted to start a fight with us. You know, we tried to de-escalate it. You know, look, we're, we're service members. We don't want any trouble. We'll leave. Uh, so we got into a vehicle. I was in a passenger seat. This gang that, you know, tried to get into it with us, they found us in the vehicle, and we were driving off. They started shooting uh, at the vehicle. So they hit the ECU of the car, which is like the electronic control unit. So our vehicle was dead, and they were just shooting at us. Uh, I didn't have a service weapon on me, so the only thing I could think to do was to hit the lever of, the chair to kind of hide my head to try to protect my head from being shot. You mean like lean back? Or? Right. Yeah. I lean back between the front door and the rear door, like in that metal hinge area uh, to try to protect my head. Uh, ended up getting deeply grazed across the chest. So when I felt that and it felt literally like Thor's hammer, like I thought I was done. It just, it was extremely painful. I didn't know the damage, but I knew I was hit. Uh, my friend that was next to me, Tyran, you know, still one of my best friends to this day. Uh, he was shot twice and, you know, we had that experience. You know, they ended up driving off. Uh, the police came, surrounded us. Of course, you know, young black men in the vehicle, just a shootout occurred. They didn't know we were military, so we're dumping out of the vehicle. We're bleeding. They really don't care about that. You know, they're throwing us on the ground, uh, you know, assessing the situation, I suppose. And then when they realized we were military, realized we were the victims, uh, you know, they ended up letting us go. But from that process, uh, I, I was eventually diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and it's been a long road, you know, I'm open and transparent about my mental health walk. Uh, you know, I attend therapy sessions weekly. Uh, cannabis has been a lifesaver for me. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but it helps, you know, it helps with my PTSD and it also helps me connect with my students currently who haven't been to war, who haven't been in the military, uh, who not necessarily all have been, you know, victims of gun violence directly, but they display a lot of the same symptoms that I have, you know, manifestations of PTSD. Right. So you're talking about your students now. So you are a teacher and have been for a few years now, right? Correct. So when I was shot in 2007, uh, they put me on restriction. Uh, You know, I was dealing with PTSD. Of course, I wasn't diagnosed at that time, but I was having like high levels of anxiety, high levels of depression, uh, anger. You know, I was quick to anger and really didn't know what was going on uh, because there's a lot of stigma uh, in the black community. I feel in communities of color in regard to mental health. Uh, So when I was first going through these things, you know, I was in denial. You know, I was trying to face them on my own. Uh, But thankfully, you know, I worked to eliminate those stigmas with some other wonderful individuals and sought help. Uh, But around that time as well, I was diagnosed, it's a lot, but I was diagnosed with Bichette's disease. So it's an autoimmune deficiency uh, because I work with chemicals as well in the military. And, you know, uh, rheumatologists felt that my body was triggered. So not only am I dealing with PTSD, but now I'm dealing with an autoimmune deficiency, autoimmune disease. And they medically discharged me in 2009. I went through the Troops to Teachers program came back, started teaching. So I taught two years alternative in the Austin community, uh, one year charter in Humble Park uh, at Aspita, 
uh, predominantly Latinx, Latin uh, school. And then from there, I went to Kenwood Academy in uh, High Park in 2012. So I was on strike. Shout out to CTU. I was on strike with CTU in 2012. Stood in solidarity and shout out to the, you know, the most recent strike. It was bigger than a paycheck. It was about our, our children and about opportunity. Uh, and from there now, I'm teaching at uh, Oak Park and River Forest High School in Oak Park, Illinois. So I've been teaching going on 11 years. And like I tell people, you know, I've lost 12 students to gun violence. Uh, and as I stated earlier, you know, many of the, the the symptoms that I displayed from being a victim of gun violence, a survivor of gun violence, I'm seeing in our youth on a daily basis. So you just tick through a, a whole very long list of issues that you've dealt with in your own life from from having to go to the military to dealing with racism and violence at a young age to uh, all the rest of it to going on strike as a, as a public school teacher. How does all these things that you just mentioned factor into this campaign that you're running now? It, it means everything because this is not a game. This is personal. And for me, too often, I think we, we find ourselves pointing fingers and dealing with symptoms. You know, like Trump, for example, is a symptom. He is not a root cause to the issues that we face. Uh, you know, gun violence is a symptom. We could go on and on. Uh, but having these experiences, uh, being being exposed to these symptoms, allow me to recognize that capitalism is the root cause for me. You know, making an I statement, and, and capitalism is propped up by white supremacy. You know, capitalism cannot exist without supremacy. Cannot exist without oppression. Uh, so, being homeless, uh, being a victim of gun violence, uh, being diagnosed uh, with an autoimmune deficiency, uh, being a public school teacher. Uh, and that sees the inequity that exists with property taxes funding our public schools, how so many students struggle, you know, with gun violence and inequity, lack of job opportunities and so on and so forth. Going to a charter school for one year and learning more of why I'm 100 percent against privatization of everything, basically, <laughs> you know, education, our prison systems, our utilities, so on and so forth. So it just prepared me to truly understand when our team is out there, because, of course, it's bigger than just myself and we're making connections. I could actually relate. You know, I can make I've been there. So you're talking about how you, these experiences led you to to be where you are today. I mean, a lot of people who have had those experiences. I mean, one, they wouldn't necessarily come to the conclusion that you did, which is that capitalism is at the root of all of these problems. And two, a lot of people who would have that upbringing that you've had, the, these struggles that you've had over your life, wouldn't think of themselves as a natural candidate for an office mm -hmm. like Congress. I mean, right. we we typically think of somebody who's going to destined to run for Congress or for president or whatever as like a Pete Buttigieg type, right? Like somebody <laughs> who's like crafted in a lab <laughs> and makes every decision their Sorry. entire life. Sorry, I need some water. Yeah. <laughs> Who makes every decision their entire life with the with right. the intention of like I'm going to be that kind of perfectly crafted person who's right. gonna who's who's meant to run for office. And obviously, you're describing a very different story than yeah, that. yeah. I mean, definitely. That, I mean, that's wonderful. Uh, you know, because again, that you say that because how many individuals out there don't recognize that again, their role in the movement is extremely important, that they have an opportunity to change lives and to connect. And what I do at the end of the day, I truly thank my parents because well, even when I was making mistakes, even when I was getting in trouble, and we still make mistakes to this day, I probably still get in trouble. I'm not perfect. Uh, my father exposed me to a lot of the movement, you know, civil rights movement, Black Panther Party. Like I was a huge study of Fred Hampton, uh, you know, grew up in Maywood, Illinois. And so I had all of this in me, you know, Muhammad Ali, the stances that he took. You know, I have a, a phrase of his tattooed on me that says, uh, you know, service to others is the rent you pay for room here on this earth. So my tat says the rent you pay. So I was always interested in a sense, even when I didn't know my direction of 
being someone who hopefully made a difference in life, you know, helped just didn't know how to do that. So my story, just becoming a teacher, you know, experiencing our broken educational system. I'm like, I got to do more. So I started a nonprofit suburban unity Alliance, uh, in 2016. Uh, and we do a lot of equity work. You know, we've done everything from help churches in Pilsen being harassed by white supremacist organizations, by buying security systems, being trained on filling out DACA renewal applications. Uh, shout out to Paso. You know, we, we got behind them and helped push the welcoming village ordinance, uh, for immigrant families. We, we pay for groceries. We pay for rent. We pay for mortgages. We help the homeless. And with all of this, I was getting to the point where, again, going back to root causes and symptoms, I got tired of just treating symptoms because the same people that I was helping on Monday, I would have to help next Monday because nothing changed. They still were in the struggle. I was just putting a Band-Aid over it. We were just putting Band-Aids over it. So when I was nominated, actually, by the community, I wasn't thinking about running for office. Uh, you know, I was involved so much politically trying to push, you know, uh, local politicians to make decisions for the people. But I was nominated by the community through brand new Congress and Justice Democrats in 2018. Uh and it got me to the point of realizing I could either spend the rest of my life feeding the homeless or I could give everything I have to end homelessness. So running for office was the ability to finally attack root cause issues. And, of course, I met wonderful individuals like Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, Cori Bush, Paula Jean Swearingen, Amy Valella. The list goes on. So that's how I got to that point of recognizing and understanding that these are the experiences that are needed to truly be representatives of our community because we've experienced struggle with our community. Too many representatives have not that are currently in office. So you're a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. How is it that you came to join DSA? Yeah, definitely. Shout out to DSA. Uh, shout out to the comrades in Chicago and across this nation. Uh, for me, I just feel like, again, growing up in a struggle, like I've been a socialist all my life, whether I knew it or not. Uh, you know, when, when you see, again, you know, the ills of capitalism and, and how you don't have ownership over yourself or over your work, uh, you may not be able to articulate in that in that moment. But I've always been a socialist, you know, especially under Fred Hampton. You know, Fred Hampton always pushed socialism. He stated that you cannot beat capitalism with capitalism. You beat capitalism with solidarity and socialism, because at the end of the day, this is a class war that we are in. So studying it and recognizing and paying attention to the Black Panther Party partnering with the Young Patriots, poor white Americans that came in and they formed the Rainbow Coalition and, and pushing this class war and fighting because it's the oppressed versus the oppressors. Did you hear that from your father growing up? That those Yo, yeah, yeah, we stories? talked about this all the time, and I would read, I would watch videos. I would, so like we've been, I've been to you know, I would go to his childhood home in Maywood, and you know, ended up as an adult being able to help save his childhood home from foreclosure. Right, that's a you recent know, struggle. Right? That was a recent struggle. So. That's how I, I didn't grow up reading Marx. Like, I'll be honest, I don't know. I didn't know who the hell Marx was. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I lived it. I didn't have to read about it, you know. So just living it and knowing that this wasn't this wasn't good enough. You know, I don't want anyone else to have to experience what I've experienced or worse. Uh, so we have to change things at a systemic level. And that means that we have to directly attack capitalism. So that's what led me as an older adult to DSA. But I've been a socialist all my life. And what about Bernie Sanders? Uh, mm -hmm. did, were you inspired by his campaign in 2016? A lot, a yeah. lot of people tell me, uh, who, several people who I've interviewed who are running for Congress, uh, I've asked them about whether or not Bernie running helped make them make the decision to run for office. Because like... Uh, you know, people have said, for example, like, oh, I, I didn't think that somebody who had politics like mine 
right. you know, believe the things that I believe in, whether it's Medicare for all right. or whatever other kind of policies that might, people might consider radical. Right. I didn't believe that you could run for office on that platform and actually be credible and people would actually no, vote no for you. Question. But obviously Bernie showed people that that's, that that's not the case. Yeah, I mean, my story is interesting. Uh, the, the first politician that actually somewhat got me excited initially was Obama. Because, of course, you know, we know how the establishment plays into identity politics. But it can be important. It has its place. You know, being a black male, I never thought in my lifetime, you know, I remember speaking to my family about this, that we would see a black person, a black man running for office. So when I see this black male hit the stage and he's talking that change shit, you know, change <laughs> and, you know, we're going to make a difference. To me, that sounded like, are we talking systemic change? Well, that's what he was clearly right, exactly, trying to get people to, to think right, without exactly. actually saying it substantively. So he right. initially motivated me and I'm like, OK, OK. But then when I started digging deeper and started recognizing, you know, his ideologies and his policies and how he wasn't any different from the Clintons. You know, another neoliberal that utilized identity uh, to tap into our struggle, to tap into our fears and, and gain support. So then I found myself jaded again, you know, because you have so many politicians that utilize their identity, that utilize your struggle. They pander to you. They lie to you. Uh, I mean, Cory Booker, for example, you know, with this T-bone story, like he wishes, <laughs> you know, like I feel like Cory Booker wishes he had my, 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 my story. Like he was shot. You know how long? Oh, my God. Every stop. I was shot in 2007 and T-bone did you it. You got shot by right? T-bone. <laughs> All right. I got shot by T-bone. Like I know the real T-bone, but like. So many of these politicians. And for are, those who don't remember, T Bone is the story of this made-up drug dealer that uh, that, that Cory Booker came right, up with that he was talking about right. on the campaign trail. He used trail. to bully him, but then it became cool, like me and T Bone. But <laughs> I feel like you need like a drum, like T Bone, after that. But T Bone would see him on the street, be like, "What's up, Daddy O?" Right. Hepcat. But uh, you have so many of these politicians that are like formulaic, like they're not right. real, you know. So. You saying that about Obama just reminds me, I mean, like, it, it's a really dangerous thing for someone like Obama to raise people's hopes really high and then just dash them against oh, the rocks, right? No, like, no you question. said for yourself that you that when you realized that he was not actually the kind of transformative candidate that you had been led to believe that he was, right. you were just sort of depressed again about that. Oh, no, no question, know. because I, I felt that in that moment it was done, like yeah. it was over, like... I would continue to fight, be boots to the ground, and, and try to, you know, again, treat symptoms, because at the time I was treating symptoms, but nothing was going to change. You know, we're still warmongering. Uh, immigration got worse under his administration. Uh, the bailout of the banks, you know what I'm saying? So it was just continuation, continuation of uplifting capitalism. And then when Bernie's campaign came along, did that Then I'm just free? like, oh, my God, this... This old white Jewish male was everything I thought Obama was. <laughs> like, this dude is the truth, mm -hmm. you know? And that Bernie changed everything for me because it led me to understand, you know, where I am today that you always, in this fight for justice and a fight for systemic change and revolution, it always has to be ideology over identity. You know, my grandma, God rest her soul, Lily G, used to say, not all skin folk are kin folk. And you could see someone who may be black. You could see someone who may be a woman, may be trans, so on and so going across the board. So many people, because of desperation and because of their own personal stories, they're desperate to grab hold of someone that they think can relate, right? Uh, but at the end of the day, they're pushing individualism. You know, Obama, Pete, uh, you know, Harris, Booker. They're still, you cannot defeat capitalism with capitalism. So Bernie's move and Bernie's movement, because it's bigger than him, it's bigger than myself, we're all part of a movement, led me to understand, like, it's not over. We have to continue to fight. We have an opportunity. 2020 is everything for me. 
This I'm putting I'm giving every damn thing I have because I feel like this is the opportunity right now for revolution. Before we move on to just talking in, uh, at length about your campaign, do you feel resentful or angry or or how do you, how do you feel about what you what you were just describing about do you feel like you see a lot of examples of people kind of weaponizing identity to every, in in less day. than progressive directions? Every day. I mean, perfect example. You know, I feel like because, again, like I don't have the privilege to to sit back and, and respect other candidates because I feel like we're in a fight. This is a class war. And in war, you fight. There's going to be casualties. So I'm not only pushing for Bernie, but I'm metaphorical also, casualties. Right. Yeah, more, metaphorical casualties. Metaphorical casualties. But I'm not only pushing for Bernie, but I'm pushing against other individuals that I feel like are not for progress, are not for growth. Uh, because I just made a post and was talking to my class earlier today in the 1850s. You know, if you look at what's happening in the 1850s when they were talking about, you know, the, the legality of slavery, when you had moderates back then speaking the same language that they speak now about civility, about patience, about let's wait, about it's out of our control. We're talking about the enslavement of human beings. And now we have slavery by a new name, you know, with our criminal justice system, privatization of prisons and public prisons as well. Just don't say abolish private prisons. Let's talk all prisons, uh, you know, ICE, our police departments like slavery in a certain extent still exists. We're still capitalizing off of bodies, free labor. Um, so it's just it's extreme. Like, I don't have the privilege to be civil because this is it for me. We're fighting for our lives right now. We have people that are too poor to live. And you want me to sit back and allow someone to speak BS and to use their identity. So, yes, uh, you know, so I was going to say, like, I just went to South Bend, Indiana, literally went out there. You know, our Revolution National had an event. And after that event, I went into the community connected with Black Lives Matter, because I think in the news we saw Black Lives Matter had crashed a PED event. And of course, you know, every excuse was made. Oh, they're Bernie supporters. Uh, Or if you're black and you're against Pete, you're homophobic, weaponizing, you know, or if you're against Harris, you're sexist. If you're against Warren, you're sexist, weaponizing because they want to silence you. But at the end of the day, if you recognize this is a class war, nothing should stop you from holding someone accountable and calling them out. So it's extremely frustrating. Uh, But I don't I don't. I don't know. Step away from it. I don't run from it. Our team doesn't run from it. Uh, it's too important. And we hope that by modeling our fight, by modeling how bold we are, because we put the video out where we talked to Jordan. Shout out to Jordan from Black Lives Matter South Bend, where he literally talked about the divestment in his community, how the police are militarized. Uh, there's zero accountability for police locally. Uh, for example, they spent millions of dollars. Pete sold them on spending millions of dollars on body cams. And then they learn after they buy them tax dollars that the body cameras have to be personally activated by a police officer. So they could be on or off when engagements occur. So Pete has failed his local community. So if you failed your local community, how the hell are you going to not fail the nation? Uh, so you can't silence black voices, and we're not going to allow the weaponization of identity to do so. So let's talk about your campaign. If people outside of Chicago have heard about you it's probably because you recently lit up a blunt <laughs> and started smoking on a campaign video. I thought maybe you were going to come through for this interview, like, you know. Right, we just coming in. Smoke me out beforehand. I'm a little disappointed. Hey, I, There's hey, no weed out hey, here. Hey, I got to make a run, especially before January 1st. Uh, yeah, right. Like, January 1st is legal in, right, uh, but, uh, in Illinois. You know, for, for, you know, for most people that probably heard about us, you know, it's through that video uh, because, again, we believe in being extremely bold. We have to be. You know, we don't have any other choice because the incumbents oftentimes, Danny K. Davis is the incumbent in Illinois 7. He's been in office for over 30 years. He's been in, he's been in his present seat for over 20. 
And one thing he told me that I will never forget, he crashed an event that I was holding in 2018 that my team was holding. And he looked me in my face and told me, I've been in office for 30 years. I'm not going to beat you because I'm better than you. I'm going to beat you because of name recognition. People know me. They have no idea who you are. He said this to you. So he looked me in my face in person. At the event? Yes. Wow. And in that same event, they admitted that they were still in our yard sign. So uh, that was fun uh, to find out because our yard signs kept getting stolen back then. Uh, but that stuck with me. You know, this is how they survive. It's by design, the gerrymandering of districts to where they, they depend upon predominantly an older black vote, particularly within our district, that tend to be more moderate, uh, more neoliberal. You know, that Obama legacy, that Joe Biden, that's why you see a lot of support for Joe Biden with older voters for, primarily. Uh, but that's what they depend upon. So for us, we don't have the, the, the privilege, again, to sit back. We have to be as bold as possible, but be bold in the right way. We're just not doing anything haphazardly. We recognize, the, again, the interconnected importance of legalization of cannabis with a focus on racial justice and reparations. Because through the uh, war on drugs, we understand how prohibition has devastated black, brown, and poor communities. So what we wanted to do was help to eliminate the stigma by showing that, again, someone like myself could smoke. We see all these ads now with white faces, with smiles on their faces, with weed. Because, again, they're now about to profit from it. Why can't it be a black face? Why every time is it weed in a black face is someone getting arrested? How about it's positive? Someone talking about their mental health walk. Someone talking about how weed is not a gateway to negativity. It's a gateway to positivity through being a medicine. So we put that video out. And so many people have come to us and been extremely supportive and positive with their reactions. I have disabled veterans reaching out to our campaign uh, just talking about, man, you know, thank you so much for helping to, you know, educate and helping to elim further eliminate the stigma. I have people reaching out from the black and brown communities. Thank you for speaking up because we have to profit. We have to benefit from prohibition ending and legalization taking hold. So it was extremely important. And also on that, in 2018, the incumbent was not for legalization on a federal level. We actually pushed his stance. He didn't believe in legalization. He then changed his stance to, okay, we could decriminalize, but leave it up to the state. If you leave it up to states, again, we understand the inequity in that. I think Wisconsin just came out with edicts saying, oh, if you go to Illinois and you purchase weed, you better be careful. Coming back to our state, it has to be at a federal level. And, you know, so, again, that, that video is getting out there. We're in the Boston Globe, Chicago, I think it was the Sun-Times and everywhere. You know, we just did a cannabis TV interview. So it, it's been really huge for us. Uh, but, again, it's more so about the, just the education and eliminating the stigma that exists. So what are the other main issues of the campaign that you're running on? Yeah. I mean, obviously, Medicare for All is right. one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue of this campaign cycle. No question. No question. Um, is that a part of what your messaging oh, is? Oh, 100%. But our message at the end of the day is the, the root cause issues that we're facing are interconnected. So they require interconnected solutions. So we're for Medicare for All. We're for the Green New Deal. We're for a homes guarantee. Of course, we're for common sense gun reform. We're for a federal jobs guarantee. Uh, we're for into the war on drugs. We're for into all privatization. We're for legalization of cannabis with a focus on racial justice and reparations. Uh, we're for equity for all people, whether it be LGBTQ, elderly, black, brown, Muslim. Uh, Jewish, so on and so forth across the board. You know, we have the most comprehensive platform uh, within this race. And I think damn near throughout the nation. I mean, we even have an anti-cruelty uh, platform for our animals, because if you can't treat your pets correctly, you know, I, I can't trust you. You can't treat your pets and animals correctly. They're the most innocent individuals on this earth. Uh, so, again, everything's interconnected. And how I say that is 
So many politicians just provide sound bites in a sense, like with gun violence. Oh, we just need to, you know, we're going to end gun violence with, with, you know, being stricter legally, you know, uh, in the loopholes. But do you understand the interconnected issues that lead to gun violence? Lack of job opportunities, food deserts, lack of investment in infrastructure. Uh, housing is a huge issue. When you bottle individuals up and have them fighting and scrapping for limited opportunity, you're going to get violence. Uh, so it's not enough to be a one-issue candidate. It's not enough to be a one-issue voter. It's not enough to be a voter with privilege that sits back and say, well, my rep votes the right way, you know, blue no matter who. No, no, we can't have that. We can't have that at all. So your district that you're running in is mostly on the west side of Chicago as well as some suburban areas. So right? we have suburban areas, Chicagoland, suburban areas. We have west side and we have a bit of downtown as well as south side, Inglewood community, uh, back of the yards. We actually walked the entire district earlier. Uh, I had my Fitbit on. It was like over 61,000 steps. <laughs> uh, we walked over 30 miles. And I'm not trying to brag here. My, my team literally had to carry me uh, to the finish line. It was like I wore the wrong shoes. I had Vans on. Uh, we had like two blocks left and the body was just like pop locking, like it was just locking up. And but no, we walked the entire district. And again, similar to going back to when I was a child, just seeing the vast disparities that exist by crossing streets, right. by a difference in levels of property tax and so on and so forth. But the, the majority of the district is uh, people of color and the largest correct, correct. portion of that is uh, black folks. And uh what is when you're out on the doors talking to mm -hmm. voters what is the message that you just articulated about everything from medicare for all to right. uh to legalization of marijuana all right. those things what, what's the response to that on right. the doors well first out? and foremost i think they're super appreciative that someone is actually coming to their door uh because including the incumbent including our current governor oftentimes money is just spent you see yard signs uh, you see some pastors paid off in churches. The pastor tells the congregation who to vote for, and that's it. To actually have someone in the community invested, actually listening, not just talking, but actually listening to what community members have to say, uh, they, they appreciate their genuineness, and they appreciate that effort. Uh, so that's first and foremost, because the incumbent doesn't do that. You only see the incumbent with turkeys when it's around holiday season and election season. They give out some turkeys, say a few words, and then go about their business. Uh, but again, the struggle is universal. They may be for when I knock on that door, they may be for Biden. You know, they may be for someone else tied into that Obama legacy. But when we come to that door and when we connect our struggles, when we talk about what it means to struggle the majority of your life and to have a Democratic establishment that is just OK with status quo an incumbent that's OK with status quo, with not actually being bold and fighting for change. That means a lot to them. And I think that's the connection that we make. Uh, I don't come necessarily to the door right away, knock on it, and they say who it is. Democratic Socialists? No. You know, because I think the establishment has done, uh, uh, for them, a, a glorious job at, again, othering socialism. You know, oftentimes in certain communities when they hear socialism, it's a disconnect. Oh, that's a white person's movement. Well, I assume most people don't even we yeah. have any framework. Right, right. They, they don't have a framework. Or they say, oh, you know, that's, that's for white people. We don't understand. I'm not overgeneralizing, but this is what I've experienced. Uh, but then when I come to them and I talk about, well, you know Martin Luther King, don't you? You know Fred Hampton, Black Panther Party, don't you? Do you know what Fred Hampton used to preach about class wars, about the ills of capitalism, about we're all in the struggle together? You know, we need interconnected movements. Uh, you start, they start understanding. You start getting a, a foot in the door. And you may not have to say you're democratic socialist, but they understand that struggle. And then they move over and they say, wow, you know, thank you for talking. Thank you for hearing us out. We can relate to what you, you've experienced and what you've been through. And we understand how the interconnected solutions that Bernie Sanders and others are pushing for, 
That's real progress. That's real empowerment. And what the establishment and the neoliberals are pushing is not. You've mentioned the incumbent several times, Danny Davis, far from the most reactionary Democrat out there. Why do you feel the need to run against this guy who some people consider to be a fairly progressive member of Congress? What, 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 is the, what are the issues that he is, is pursuing or hasn't pursued that you think require definitely. an incumbency change? Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, this goes back to why I have an issue with the blue no matter who mantra, you know, that individuals push. Because I think that comes from extreme privilege, if you're able to say that, particularly in primaries. Oh, you know, blow, vote blue no matter who. Well, that's not the argument that we always hear. We always hear that, like, black voters actually understand how important it is to vote blue no matter who. Right? Yeah, and I, and I, as a black voter, I, I denounce <laughs> that. I, I disagree with it. What happens is black voters are taken for granted and ignored uh, and spoken for oftentimes. Uh, but for me, you know, it's not about ageism because Bernie is an older gentleman as well. We have a lot of older individuals that are still boots to the ground with fire. But when you have incumbents that are tied within to the machine, tied within to the establishment, and they're more focused on just individual status quo, just maintaining their seat, maintaining their title, they're not going to rock the boat. You know, Martin Luther King has a saying uh, that, you know, I love like we all came here on. We all may have all come here on different ships, but we're on the same boat now. You know, that's intersectionalism right there. But if you're not rocking that boat, if you're just sitting back and just comfortably going downstream, (laughs) continuing down that same path of status quo, we're going to continue to lose people. We right now, again, we have people that are too poor to live dying on a daily basis. So it's not enough for an incumbent to sit there, have us be boots to the ground, fighting for the issues, bleeding, giving everything that we have. And then once it gets to the table, they'll say, Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll vote for it. But are you fighting for it? There's a difference between sitting back and putting your name on something and getting into the community, being boots to the ground, educating, learning, and fighting for something. Are you referring to a specific instance you have in mind of that? I mean, I mean, definitely, definitely. I mean, if you look at, again, our, our fight for cannabis, we moved him on cannabis. He was sitting back saying he didn't believe in legalization. He didn't even believe in decriminalization at first. We moved him because of our fight. But now in 2020, heading into 2020, because he sees the nation is shifting, more states are legalizing, we're legalizing locally, Oh, now he'll, if you call him, oh, yeah, yeah, I support. But again, were you supportive? Were you supportive when black and brown bodies were getting incarcerated on a daily basis due to the war on drugs and prohibition? Or are you supportive now because it individually benefits you? And I think that's the difference. Uh, You know, he endorsed Harris uh, in the presidential race. She's a cop. I, I just believe that. I think others do as well. Someone else that is tied into the establishment, someone else that is not pushing for progressive change. They believe in using capitalism to maintain capitalism. So I think that sign shines light on a lot of things. And you can actually go on YouTube. I challenge people who listen to this. Go on YouTube and type in Danny K. Davis and Arnie Duncan. And if you're not familiar with Arnie Duncan, that is Mr. Privatization. That is one of Rahm Emanuel's homies, Obama's homies. He's one of the individuals that pushed the privatization movement within the city of Chicago and beyond, whether it be our school systems, whether it be uh, Aramark that's contracts out to our school systems. You can look online and see students crying, uh, reaching out because their food is spoiled. It's rotten. It's fungi. And, you know, the buildings are tearing, t- torn down because, again, if you privatize, you're pushing profit before people. Danny Davis actually had multiple backroom meetings with Arnie Duncan and others heading into the closing of public schools within our district and beyond. 
heading into the closing of mental health facilities within our district and beyond. So if you understand the interconnected issues that exist, the closing of schools, the closing of mental health facilities, this all plays a role in gun violence. This all plays a role in job opportunities or lack thereof. This all plays a role into the divestment in our communities. So I'm not I don't have the privilege to sit back and just allow this individual and his team to continue us in the direction that we're in. And I'm just going to end it here. Austin community, which he depends upon, used to be the largest community within Chicago, predominantly black. Individuals are leaving Austin in droves because they're just trying to escape despair. They're trying to escape poverty. You know, the, the joblessness used to be in Austin used to be four times the national average. It's ticked down to a little bit over two, but that's still two <laughs> percent too many. Uh, so we just need real systemic change within our district. And I think we're the ones to do it. And before we end it here, uh, you mentioned earlier your experience with being in the in the military and how that that shaped how you view the military and, and mm-hmm. the military power overseas and all of that. Uh, can you just talk about that in light of if you were to be elected, obviously you would be somebody who would help be helping to determine American foreign policy. Right. How do you see the main thrust of American foreign policy? Right. What would you want to accomplish on the foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think, again, you know, there's so many wonderful individuals already in this fight. You know, once I win the seat and become the next representative with my team of the Illinois 7th Congressional District, with my experience in the military, I'm always 100 percent going to be for diplomacy. We have to end all wars. We have to uh, end the military industrial complex. We have to defund our military. We're spending trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars for profit. I mean, Nancy Pelosi just had an interview where she said she knew Bush was lying. But did she speak up? Did others? We destabilize other nations for profit, essentially. We destabilize democracy. Look what's happening in Bolivia that no one speaks up about. So we have to stop. We have to end our warmongering because that's what we are. If I get judged for saying this, I'm going to say it. The United States are terrorists. Our current military, we're we're the terrorists. We really are. But too often we other, too often we point at other individuals and create narratives to justify going into other nations, breaking it down, destabilizing, destroying, and then we're taking out their resources, whether it be human or natural. Uh, So I truly believe that we have to end our warmongering. We have to demilitarize. Uh, also demilitarize our police forces who oftentimes get a lot of military equipment and then they're in our cities and communities with fucking tanks, excuse my language, uh, you know, killing black and brown bodies. Uh, so, th- you know, that's just my, my, my idea. You know, again, I'm not the one all end all be all, but I just truly believe that it always must be about diplomacy. We always, always must work with other nations in regards to trying to aspire to and maintain peace and democracy. We have to push for democracy. We are eliminating democracies across this continent. And uh, I think it's sad. I think it's ridiculous. Uh, That's not patriotism. Patriotism is holding your nation accountable. Those are true patriots. Last question. If you make it to Capitol Hill, will you smoke a blunt inside of your congressional offices? Uh, yes. Will you be the first yes. congressman you know, to but, ever smoke weed inside your office. But you know, what? But you know what? Why that question is hilarious? Because I think we have so many hypocrites in office now. I don't think I would be the first one <laughs> to smoke a blunt. I think I would be the first one to be honest about smoking a blunt. Uh, but again, yes, you know, we're lighting up. We're celebrating. Uh, and we're going to have some fun, you know, while we fight for change. And, you know, I just want to tell people 
support these progressive individuals across this nation. You know, we're just normal, everyday people. We're pushing for change. You know, our website is voteanthonyclark.com. Add me on social media, Anthony V. Clark 20, whether it be Twitter or Instagram. We're building coalitions. We uplift each other on a daily basis. There's so many wonderful candidates across this nation that are tied into this movement, pushing for Bernie and and pushing for our, our collective progress. Anthony Clark, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd and recorded at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can listen to other episodes of The Vast Majority as well as our other Jacobin podcasts at Jacobin Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Please do rate and review us as that really makes a difference in people finding us. And we don't ask you for any money on the show, but it's definitely not free. So please subscribe to Jacobin at jacobinmag.com slash subscribe. Buy Jacobin swag at our online store. Subscribe to our journal Catalyst or do whatever else that involves giving us money. Please and thank you.